Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 2 tonight. We are going through the uh, Gospel of John. We took a little while with the first chapter because there were some important things that, uh, that John said in his introduction, which is the first uh, 18 verses of uh, the first chapter. Then we talked a little bit in the, the, toward the end of the first chapter of John about uh, John the Baptist, his witness of Jesus. In chapter 2, um, we'll back up and say a couple other things, and you'll see why in just a moment. Notice in chapter 2, it starts off, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, the fact that it says, and the third day, means that it's tying it in to other things that it said before. Let me draw your attention to chapter 1. In verse 35, it says again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and that's where John said, uh, behold the Lamb of God and his two disciples, which we know of as John, the author of this, this uh, letter this gospel, as well as Andrew, who were disciples of John the Baptist, then they followed Jesus. And then it says in verse, uh, what is it, verse 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and found Philip. So the first day it tells us about the forerunner, it tells us about John the Baptist pointing his disciples toward Jesus, away from himself and toward Jesus. The second day it talks about Jesus uh, finding his disciples, calling certain of his disciples, it identifies that he reached Philip in a different way than he did Nathaniel. Uh, it it uh, identifies that uh, that Jesus deals with people um, according to what's in their heart. And and the the important thing about that is, so many people try to try to um, try to boil witnessing down to a formula. There is no formula. I mean, you can make one, but it doesn't work for everybody. And a lot of people have. The church over the years has made formulas for witnessing, and thank God for the good that they do. But Jesus didn't have a formula. Jesus reached people, different people in different ways according to the things that were in their heart. We're going to see this in, uh, at other times that uh, as we go further into the Gospel of John. Uh, one time in particular, uh, well, I'll give you two examples. In John chapter 3, he talks about Nicodemus. It tells us the story of Nicodemus and how Jesus reached him. In chapter 4, it tells us how he reached the woman at the well of Samaria. And all of those were different ways and different methods than he reached any of the others. So there's no formula. There is no set formula. But the Bible says in the book of Colossians, Paul told us by the Holy Ghost in the book of Colossians, that if we'll commit ourselves to the things of God and allow the Holy Ghost to lead us, we'll have an answer for every man. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about people that have questions. He's talking about people that have objections. He's talking about people that will be resistant to the things of God. Folks, the Holy Ghost is your formula when it comes to reaching people. Now, there may, be a, there may be common things that you do from one time to the next to get conversation started or whatever it might be. But Jesus didn't use the same method all the time. And the Bible seems, uh, the Holy Ghost seems to think that's important enough for it to be the, one of the beginning points of John's gospel. Now we get to chapter 2 and he says, in the third day. So he tells us some things right off the bat about the first day, the first day being John's first day with him, the second day the day that he found Philip and some of the other disciples. The third day, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, beyond that, we'll talk about this a little bit further in chapter 2. The book of John, uh, the Gospel of John is probably the least chronologically accurate of any of the other Gospels. And there's a reason for that. Matthew is probably the most, chron- the most uh, chronologically accurate. He's probably the one that gave us the most, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And Matthew is a tax collector. He's a bookkeeper. He's an accountant. He's going to be precise. 
John, however, has a different purpose. Remember that this book was written, this letter was written uh, in about 90 to 95 A.D. Whereas all the other letters were completed by the mid-60s. Maybe, maybe as late as 67 A.D. But certainly none of the other epistles, none of the other, uh, and the gospels were written much earlier than that. So none of the other letters that we have uh, written to the church are within 30 years or about 30 years of this letter that's been written. John's purpose is not to tell people things that they didn't know. John's purpose is not to rehash the gospel accounts that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knows about those. Everybody knows about those. Everybody knows the the chronology. Everybody knows the details about certain things. John's purpose is to tell us about Jesus being the Son of God. That's the whole theme of the book of John, that Jesus is the Son of God. The others have different themes. They have different uh, uh, emphasis that the Holy Ghost uh, gave them or placed upon them when they wrote their Gospels. But John's whole thing is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's, uh, it's interesting, to me at least, I hope it is to you, it's interesting that John is the only writer in the New Testament that writes when Judaism is not an issue. He's the only one. You remember that the Jews were, were Paul's source of persecution. Everywhere he went, the Jews stirred up trouble. Well, Paul concluded his last ministry. He probably died, was crucified uh, or killed by uh, Nero in about 68 maybe 69 A.D., before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., before the temple was taken down. One reason that we believe that uh, that Paul was, uh, one reason that uh, that some believe, I do, that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews is that he talks about the temple worship and the sacrifices that were taking place. So we know that letter had to be written before the, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. John doesn't have that. We look at some of the things that the Bible says about Jesus' earthly ministry and even some of the things that Paul writes, and we think, well, how does that, how does that apply to us? Because it's so much about the Jews. I, I've got to tell you, folks, I don't give a whole lot of thought to Jews or Judaism or anything else when I'm preparing sermons. As well, you might understand, Judaism is not an issue for us. We're a Gentile church. We certainly welcome Jews into our midst. I'm sure we have a lot of them sitting here. But it's not an issue. Judaism... Jewelry is not an issue for the for the church because the church by and large today during this point in time, not just our church, I'm talking about worldwide, is a Gentile church. Now, the Bible says God's got a plan for the Jews after the fullness of the Gentiles is, is come, meaning when the church is raptured, the Gentile church primarily leaves the earth, then God's going to do a lot of great things for the Jews. But at the time that Paul writes, Judaism is not an issue. There hasn't been a sacrifice in the temple for about 25 years. There has not been a temple for about 25 years. So John is not going to talk about things that are in the past for the people that are living. He's going to try to give the people that are living in his day something that they can use to gain closer and greater fellowship with the Lord. So the things that he does say, the first day, the second day, and the third day, he's telling us this is how things started. And Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God on all of these accounts. So let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. We'll read down through the most of the story, and then we'll back up and make some comments. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto his servants, unto these servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. 
And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, a firkin is, according to the margin of my Bible, is about nine gallons. So these are anywhere from 20 to 30 gallon stone pots. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled him up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now, now and bear unto the governor of the feast. I guess the governor was like the MC of everything that was going on. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Let us stop and talk about some of these things. This is very symbolic. Now, this is something that actually happened. This was a real-life story. But the symbolism that the Holy Ghost brings out is interesting in that it happened within the first three days. Because the first three days all had to do with Jewish issues. It all had to do with Judaism. It all had to do with things pertaining to the Jews. Now, we've said this before, but I think it bears repetition just to take a moment to uh, recount this. John is different in his gospel than anybody else, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, in that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a period of time, the first half, basically, of their gospel accounts. Jesus is ministering to the Jews, and then he shifts over and starts ministering to the Gentiles. After he's rejected by the Jews, then he goes and ministers to the Gentiles. John starts off with Jesus ministering to everybody. Now, one of the reasons for that, and it identifies very clearly in chapter 1, it said, he said in his introduction in verse 11, He, Jesus, came into his own, and his own received him not. Talking about the Jews. Verse 26, John the Baptist said to the Jews that, that sent, uh, out, sent priests out to him to find out who he was and who gave him the authority to, to minister the way that he was doing. He said, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. These are indictments against Judaism. Now, it's not that Judaism is a still a big deal, because it's not. There is no priesthood. There, there has never been a priesthood since uh, 70 A.D. So there is no high priest. There's no person standing in the office of the high priest. There's nobody calling people to sacrifice. There is no sacrifice because you've got to have a temple to make the sacrifice. And there is no temple after 70 A.D. So it's not that John is trying to steer people away from Judaism like Paul spent so much of his time doing. It's not a factor. But what he is doing is he's showing how that Jesus was sent first to the Jews and the Jews rejected him right off the bat. That's what these things symbolize. Now back to this, uh, back to chapter two, the wedding at Cana. It's interesting to me that it says that one of the first places, or the first place that Jesus did his first miracle, began his miracles, was as a, as a, at a wedding. Marriages seem to mean something with God because that's one of the first things that the Bible says happened at creation. In chapter two of Genesis, the last couple of verses, after God makes woman, takes the rib from Adam's side and makes woman, Adam is the one that declares. Adam, who has been given. Authority by God here on the earth. He's the God of this world, literally. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Well, what's a father and mother? Adam says things by his wisdom through fellowship with God, walking with God in the cool of the day. He says things that haven't even occurred yet. But he, the ruler of the earth, under God's command, God's the one that gave him authority and dominion over all the works of his hands. Adam is the one that that describes the laws of marriage. Adam's the one that says, here's how it's going to be. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. You can't have a wife without a wedding. 
And this is the place that Jesus starts doing his first miracle. It shows God's attitude toward marriage. Now, that's interesting when you think of the end times because of what Jesus said about the end. He, one of the things that he says, and Paul says the same thing, but one of the things Jesus said by the Holy Ghost was that the sign of, uh, of Noah would be the sign of the last generation, the sign of, his, of the rapture, in other words. He says, as it was in Noah's day, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So there must be something about eating and drinking and marriage and giving in marriage that has to do with last day signs. Yet here's the first place that Jesus does a miracle. He's been anointed of the Holy Ghost, but notice that John doesn't even talk about that. He doesn't even talk about anything other than being baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descending upon him and staying. He didn't talk about John go, or Jesus going into the wilderness. Well, he did. We know that from Matthew and Luke. He doesn't talk about Jesus going to Capernaum and talking about the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He doesn't talk about him going to Nazareth. He doesn't talk about any of those things, yet he tells what happened right after Jesus was baptized by the Holy Ghost. He went to a wedding. He was invited to a wedding. I think that's significant. I think we ought to invite God to weddings. I know a lot that he hasn't been invited to, and that may be the problem with the marriages. So it says, The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Please notice it calls Mary Jesus' mother. The mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said, What kind of cheapskate wedding is this that you've asked me to? Folks, this is not just some casual occurrence. Jesus answers and says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. Now, i got to tell you, if you look this up in the the original language, it's a real good translation. And it sounds that Jesus is disrespecting his mother. He doesn't say, Mom, it's not my problem. Is that why you asked me here? He, He doesn't say any of the kind of things that you might say to your mom. He calls her woman. Why is that? Well, folks, you need to understand something. From the time that Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, his mother was not the one that directs him in the things of God. She's been directing him all of his life. He's been showing respect to her all of his life. But now that he's in the ministry, now that he's here to do the will of his father, she's not the one that decides what happens and how. Everything outside of the ministry, sure, that's fine. Honor your father and mother. That's all the days of your life. But not when it comes to doing the will of the Father. I'm, uh, I'm blessed to have a great mom. And here over the last year, she's moved out to California, and, and uh, she and some of the rest of my family now are in my church. But when it comes to pastoring the church, she's not my mom. I'm not interested in doing what she thinks I ought to do with the church any more than I'm interested in, think, in what you think I ought to do with the church. I've got a boss. His name's Jesus. He's the head of the church. And just because somebody, related or not, comes and says, here's what you ought to do. Now, that seems to be what she's doing here. It seems to be that she's saying, you need to do something about that. Why in the world would she think he should do something about it? What is it about their relationship or their history or their time together now that he's 30 years old? What in the world is it that would make her think he's going to do something about this? Well, it tells me that she's used to Really strange and wonderful things taking place through her relationship with Jesus. And folks, you need to realize, just because Jesus has not been anointed of the Holy Ghost until he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, just a few days before this, apparently, not very long at least, 
it doesn't mean that he hasn't been on the earth operating in the authority that belongs to a sinless, righteous man. Now, what authority does the Bible say belongs to the righteous? You can have what you say. He's been operating separate from and apart from the law of sin and death here on the earth. So his words come to pass. Now, remember Mary. She knows who Jesus is. The angel Gabriel appeared to her 30 years ago, over 30 years ago now. He appeared to her and said, you're going to have the Son of God. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. She knows whether anybody else knows or not, and who knows what kind of rumors went around, you know, based on who she told or who she didn't tell or whatever. Who knows what kind of rumors went around about Jesus being illegitimate or whatever the case might be. Uh, John indicates uh, later on in the gospel that they question Jesus about who his father is. That may be an indication that there was some kind of talk about whether or not Joseph was really his father because Mary was pregnant before they got married. But regardless, maybe that was the case, maybe it wasn't the case. But regardless, Mary knows what has been spoken of of her son Jesus. You know, it's probably not the easiest thing in the world to be the mother of, of Jesus. Being the son of God's mother might not have been such a, a cakewalk. Because think about it. We would imagine that the son of God would come into the earth and all of a sudden he would be unlike anybody and, and everybody else there is. But Jesus just grows up like a normal kid. We would think that the son of God is going to do miracles in the crib. I mean, he's the son of God. Who would expect that he would grow up and mature and, and, and increase like, uh, like normal kids do? He's the son of God. Why would we expect that? Yet that's what he does. The only thing the Bible says was interesting or unique about Jesus was that he studied the word of God every day. Isaiah said that that was one of the characteristics of Jesus was that he was in the word daily. We see a little bit of that in, in, uh, when he was 12 years old and he was left behind when they went to Jerusalem for the feast. They come back three days later and they find him in the temple. He's asking the, the rabbis and the priests questions that they can't answer. He's answering all their stuff. Everybody's amazed. Well, you could push that off just to, well, he studies all day long. He should know something. I mean, okay, he's a brainy kid. But there's nothing up to this point in time, there is nothing that's happened that's going to identify Jesus as the Son of God, and that's why he had to be anointed by the Holy Ghost to do the work of the Father. But she's still looking for something out of him. So she says, Jesus, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus answers and says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. This phrase tells us a little bit about what Jesus is saying, where he says, mine hour is not yet come. John mentions seven different times in his gospel where Jesus refers to the hour that he was sent for. Let me show you just a couple. Turn with me over to chapter 7. We'll look at one in chapter 7 and one in chapter 12. John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Chapter 12, here's two accounts, two different verses, where he talks about his hour. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus answered them and said, the hour is come that the Son of God, the Son of Man, excuse me, should be glorified. I'm going to read down through verse 27 where the next account is. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. 
If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. So what's he talking about? What's the hour that he's talking about? He's talking about the cross and that which results from the cross. Because he's talking here about the hour being when a corn of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it brings forth more, most, more fruit. So he's talking literally, the hour that he was sent for is literally to redeem mankind. As John said, to save the earth from sins. So he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. In other words, he's saying, you don't decide what makes up redemption or the will of the Father for me on the earth. Pretty stinging rebuke, huh? But notice how she takes it. She turns to the servants. She says, whatever he says to you, you do it. That says to me she's used to something about his words. I mean, for most mothers, they would have gone into the corner and had a big cry. They would have responded, honey, I don't know how you could treat me like this. I was in labor for 12 hours with you. In a barn. There's all kinds of things she could have responded, but notice how she responded. She turned to the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do it. In other words, she takes her position as obeying his word. So what does Jesus do? Apparently, even though she couldn't direct the hand of God, couldn't direct the ministry of the Holy Ghost in him, apparently now that he has put her in with an understanding of what her place is and is not concerning the will of the Father, now God speaks to him. God tells him what to do. And what is he telling? Notice it says, verse 6, And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. There were set there six, what does it say, how does it say it again? Six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Notice what has happened at this wedding. What has happened at this wedding is that Judaism is controlling it. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews, you can't find anything in the law that says this is the way that it works. You can't find anything in the law of Moses that says, here's how you wash your hands and your feet. Yet the Jews have come up with all kinds of rituals. But notice, these stone pots which represent Judaism are empty. Now, what does the water signify? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus washes the cleanses the church with the washing of water by the word. So the word of God is signified in Scripture by the water. And Jesus says to that about that which represents Judaism, which is empty, it's powerless, it has no ability whatsoever. He says, it's an indication that Judaism has lost the word of God. They've still got their rituals, they've still got all their commandments, they've still got all their do's and don'ts, but they don't have any power. They've lost the word. They've gone away from what God told Moses, and now they're going by what they want or think everybody ought to do on their own. They've departed from the word of God. So the first thing Jesus says is, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. What happens next? Then he said unto them, unto the servants, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, 
What happened? Notice what Jesus did not do. Notice what happens in the first miracle, the first thing that starts this off. And please notice, this is what John is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us, uh, tell the people of his day and tell us as well. The Holy Ghost saved us a record that Jesus' first miracle was not Jesus walking over to the thing, saying in front of everybody, fill these water pots with water. By the way, these water pots for the purifying of the Jews is what they wash their hands and their feet in. These were not drinking pots. People didn't drink water in those days. It was uh, laden with bacteria and it was unsafe. That's why there was so much wine. That's why wine was the, the drink of choice. But at a, at, a, at a wedding feast, that would be something where you'd bring out good wine. It wouldn't be just daily stuff. It would be the good stuff. Go down deep into the cellar to get this stuff, I guess. I don't know. But Jesus didn't walk over there in front of everybody and say, fill the water pots with water. In my name, turn to wine. Didn't say a thing. He made no command. He just said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled it up to the top. And then he said, now take it to the governor of the feast. Now, tell me something. When did it turn into wine? I don't have an answer. It's a rhetorical question. I don't, I guess we could argue different, different points in time. We could say that it turned into wine when they started scooping it out. Or we could say that it was still water until they got it to the governor of the feast. I don't know. But I know this. I know only the servants knew what happened. Jesus tried to, didn't try to make some big show. The miracle took place at the hands of individuals here on the earth. Servants. They're the only ones that really knew. The governor of the feast, as important as he is, he had no idea where it came from. But the servants did. Folks, the first miracle that Jesus performed, as John relates it, and he was there. As John relates it, the first miracle was at the hands of ordinary people. Just the ones that were willing to obey his word. Just the ones that were willing to follow his instructions. Now, the last thing I want you to see about this, or next to the last, I guess, is that when the governor of the feast saw this, he calls the bridegroom and says, verse 10, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, wine is always talked about in the, Holy, in the uh, scriptures as a type of the Holy Ghost. I don't have any doubt that this is a symbol of uh, uh, symbolic of uh, salvation because it's the word of God that we're born again by. It's the word of God that causes us to be made new creatures for the, the, the Holy Ghost to change us and make us new creatures. You remember Jesus said uh, at another time in his ministry, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. He's saying you got to be changed. Your spirit has to be reborn. It has to be made new, recreated so that the Holy Spirit can come into you. Otherwise, you couldn't stand it. It would kill you. Just like the glory of God would have killed Moses if God hadn't put his hand over him and walked by and let him see his back parts. So wine is a type of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's taking the word and, and changing a recreation, if you will, to that which represents the Holy Spirit. And the only ones that knew, as I said before, were the servants. But here's the important thing that I want you to see as far as we're concerned. God always saves his best till last. I believe this was true in John's day. I believe John was trying to say the salvation of the Gentiles will be greater than of the Jews. 
The work in the Gentile world will be greater than the Jews because the Jews rejected Jesus. But as far as the end time is concerned, I want you to see that the Bible says that God's pattern, Jesus' first miracle was a type of saving the best till last. That excites me. Because there's been some good stuff before. But if God's pattern is to save the best till last, we've got some good stuff to look forward to. Amen? Now, notice it says in verse 11, this beginning of miracles, that means it's the first one. John's telling us about the first one. And the first one had to do, it was representative of Jesus' work with the Jews in Judaism. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. What are they with him for if they don't believe on him? Nathaniel believed on him because he, he told him about seeing him under the, the fig tree the day before he came. I thought they already believed. I thought John and Andrew believed because of what John the Baptist said. I thought Andrew and James, later James, John's brother, came and believed on Jesus because of what their brothers told them. I thought these guys already believed. Apparently, they're operating by faith like we do, but now as they commit themselves to follow him, that's when they start seeing the miracles. What I want you to understand is this. When Jesus said... To his mother, you don't control the hand of God. God directs me. He's saying that will only happen when my hour has come. Now, folks, I would submit to you this, and I want you to understand this. When Jesus is challenged by his mother about they don't have any wine, Jesus refers to the cross where he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus isn't challenged by his mother. He's challenged by the cross, the redemptive work that he sent to accomplish. And once that work was accomplished, once Jesus went to the cross, died, and was buried, was buried, and then was raised from the dead, from that moment forward, the things of God, the work of God, has not been according to God's will. It's been according to man's will. You don't get saved because God wants you saved. You get saved because you choose to get saved. How do we know that? Because the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world. Everybody is eligible for salvation as far as God's concerned, then why doesn't everybody get saved? Because not everybody chooses to receive. But it goes even further than forgiveness of sins and being made righteous. The healing power of God is not who God decides to give it to. It's who decides to receive it. Miracles are not according to God's decision. They're according to your decision to receive them. You and I, in after Jesus' hour, since Jesus' hour has come, it's different in, in John chapter 2 than it is today. Now that Jesus has already been raised from the dead, he's made available all the work of God, all the accomplished work of God as revealed to us in the Scripture, according to your will. Not according to God's. It's according to your will. You see what he's saying? Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Let me read down through about verse uh, 17, and then we'll back up and make some comments. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Now, notice he's not talking about the next day and the next day and the next day anymore. He gave us the first three days of Jesus' ministry from the time that John joined him. Now it's just a matter of these are the things that occurred. These are things that took place. Verse 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. 
And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold the doves, Take these things thence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about Jesus cleansing the temple, but they all put it at the end of his ministry. They all put it at the last week, the week of Passion, during the Passion Week, just before, a couple of days before Jesus was crucified. Why does John set it here? Because John's still talking about Jesus' ministry to the Jews. His purpose is to show how Jesus first ministered to the Jews what he found among his own when he was sent to them. Now, I want you to hold your finger here. We're going to come back to this. But I want you to turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is the story of the Passover when the Passover was instituted. And I want you to see what it says. You remember the story? The ten plagues are taking place in Egypt. This is the last of the tenth. These are the, the last of the ten plagues. This is number ten. And this is the death of the firstborn. God tells Moses to tell all the people to take a lamb, one lamb per house. If, uh, if your house isn't big enough, then join together with your neighbor. Take that lamb, kill it, put the blood upon the doorpost, and shut yourself in that night. Prepare it, roast the lamb, and eat the lamb. Eat the Passover meal, and the blood on the doorpost would cause the, the angel of death to pass over you. Now, folks, please understand the angel of death is not the devil. Uh, some people will say, yeah, but the, didn't Jesus say the thief kills, steals, and destroys? Yeah, in our day. In our day. That's exactly the way that it is now that Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh, that he took sin upon himself. He was made sin for our sake. That wasn't the case in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would execute judgment, righteous judgment, upon sin. And because there was no sacrifice to separate sin from the people, a a once-and-for-all sacrifice, that's why they had to institute the Day of Atonement. That's why they had to go through the ritual worship and uh, all the different things. That's why before the law of Moses is ever given... He had to institute the Passover so there could be a blood sacrifice so that the people could be spared of, of the judgment that should be rightly theirs because they're sinners too. Well, who's not under the blood? The Egyptians. We don't have record there was anybody in Israel that didn't put the blood on the doorpost, so we, we, we would be in error, in my opinion, to assume that that took place. So we can say, uh, at least I feel confident in saying, that, that all of Israel was spared the judgment that rightly belonged to all mankind because everybody's a sinner. But that judgment came upon Egypt because they refused to obey the word of God through Moses. But folks, Pharaoh refusing to obey what God told Moses to say was no greater a sin than the sins that Israel was uh, guilty of themselves. So if you're going to execute righteous judgment, it should be on everybody, right? Well, what spared Israel? The blood, the Passover. So God is just and righteous and, and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's right in executing judgment upon the earth. But he doesn't do that now because Jesus judged sin. That's why in the Old Testament, God would very, very clearly, very, uh, well, not oftentimes, but it, it happened uh, quite a bit during David's reign as king. God told Israel, go fight against them and destroy everybody there. It's what he told Joshua when they entered into the promised land. Don't leave anybody alive. Kill them all. Well, that sounds kind of harsh. And some people will say, yeah, and the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So how can God kill? 
Folks, the Bible does not say thou shalt not kill. The Bible says thou shalt not do murder. And murder is defined in Scripture, the original Hebrew is defined in Scripture as the shedding of innocent blood. God has never shed innocent blood, but he has executed judgment upon those who would not turn from sin. And that's a righteous judgment. Are you out there? That's why abortion is sin and capital punishment is not. Abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. Capital punishment is not. That's why the Old Testament law of the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, that's why that was legitimate according to the righteous judgment of God. You're not shedding innocent blood, you're shedding guilty blood. And that's okay as far as God's concerned. That's why God would command Israel to go kill their enemies sometimes because these were people that stood against God's pleading with them Sometimes through a prophet, sometimes through just circumstance to honor his covenant with Israel. But remember what God told Abraham. I'll bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. Why? Because cursing Abraham and the children of Abraham was standing against the covenant and the word that God had had given them. Are you with me? So the Passover was instituted. Notice what Moses tells them about the Passover. Look at verse 11. It says, And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and the staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Verse 14, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Look again at the last part of verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. Back to John chapter 2. I'm going to start reading verse 12 again. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days, and the Jews' Passover. Look at what it's become. It's not the Lord's Passover anymore. It's the Jews' Passover. Can you see that? Why does the Bible identify it as the Jews' Passover? Now, folks, Passover is a whole week long. There is one Passover meal. There's one Passover night, but it's an event that's all week long. And do you remember what they're supposed to do during the week? Prior to the Passover, anybody remember? They're supposed to clean their houses, purge the houses of leaven. What's leaven a type of? Sin. Notice what Jesus found in the temple. He found in the temple, verse 14, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Now, let me explain to you what's happened. The law of Moses... The remembrance of the Passover, the memorial of the Passover, is that every house is supposed to take a lamb. And this lamb is supposed to be prepared. This lamb is supposed to be taken from your flocks. And remember, we even mentioned it earlier in the service. If there was, uh, if, there was if the house wasn't big enough for a whole lamb, because you weren't supposed to leave any of it, you're supposed to eat all of it. And that symbolizes taking advantage of all the blessings of God through the redemptive work of Jesus. Don't just take forgiveness of sins and leave out healing or prosperity or anything else. Eat it all. But if your household wasn't big enough for a lamb, then you join together with others. The point is, you take the lamb from a personal standpoint. It's something that means something to you. And this lamb is supposed to then be presented for a a covering for the household. But what's happening? People are coming to Jerusalem for the feast and they come into the temple, they're not bringing lambs with them. The Jews, the law of the Jews, 
the tradition of the Jews, the Pharisees, have come up with this idea. If you're rich, you should give an oxen. If you're just middle class, then a lamb will do. And if you're poor, turtle doves will work. And instead of people bringing something that's precious to them, something that they have given of themselves, now they get to the temple, which where it talks about the temple, it's talking about the outer court. Just on the other side of the wall is where the sacrifices are being made. So this outer court is now filled with money changers because you could not, everybody was required to bring half a shekel to the temple. And you couldn't give foreign money because foreign money had an, had an image of somebody else on it. And so you had to bring Jewish money, which was clean of any inscription or anybody's image. Well, you can't find Jewish money in places where the Jews are coming from. People are coming from all over the place. You remember on the day of Pentecost, it talks about how people came from all different parts of the world. And when the Holy Ghost was poured out and they began to speak with other tongues, they heard them speak in their own languages. Well, people are coming from everybody or everywhere. They're coming from every city. They're coming from every town. They're coming from different countries. They're coming from all over the place. You can't get Jewish money everywhere. So they have to take whatever money they have and exchange it. You've been to foreign countries, you see these exchange booths and stuff like that in airports because you need to get their currency. Well, what happens to your money when you exchange it? You lose some of it. They take a cut of it. The exchangers take a cut of it. The exchangers are taking a cut of this. So now, for convenience... People are not doing what God commanded them to do. They're not doing something that's precious to them. They're just doing what seems to be easier. Jesus didn't seem to be okay with that. Think about it from the other standpoint. Let's say that you're somebody that recognizes the significance of the Passover. And you've brought a lamb. You've traveled for a long distance and you've brought a lamb. You're not letting this lamb walk because it's got to be something that's that's clean, that's pure. It can't be without with spot or blemish. So you're taking care of it. It's riding in the wagon even if you don't. Not too convenient. Long, dusty trip. But you get there, and when you start entering into something that's significant and supposed to mean something to you as far as fellowship with God is concerned, you are bombarded with merchandisers. Remember when Disneyland was nice and you didn't have to fight through all the merchandise stuff to get to the, where you were going to go in the good old days? Now, yeah, they're making a lot more money, but it's not, it's not as much fun for the people that go, is it? How much more so is that true for somebody that's committing their heart to the Lord and trying to operate according to what God said to do? So not only have they turned it into to a counter purpose from what God intended, but now they're ruining the fellowship that somebody that is following the things of God and the commands of God in this regard that they would have in the temple. Verse 15, And when he had made a scourge of small cords, that means a little whip, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of prayer. Matthew says, that he went a little bit further, gave us a little bit more detail. He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. Now, I want you to notice something, even though Jesus is upset. Now, certainly Jesus never sinned. If Jesus sinned, then his sacrifice on the cross meant nothing. He was an unrighteous man, just like you would have been or I would have been or anybody else, right? 
So Jesus did not sin. That means whatever anger, whatever emotions Jesus was feeling, I don't think Jesus took a little whip and said, y'all go on, now it's time to go. He separated these people from, from their money. That's not the easiest thing to do in a lot of cases. So whatever anger he was operating under, righteous anger, certainly. Whatever emotion he was operating under, it wasn't sin. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, be angry and sin not, which means anger in itself is not sin. Now, you can let your anger push you into doing something that's sinful. But obviously, Jesus didn't do this in this case. So Jesus drove the money changers out. But notice what it says that he did. Even Jesus in his anger operating in righteous anger. Notice that Jesus did not sin. Now, if Jesus had destroyed anybody's property, that would have been thievery. He didn't. It says he drove out the oxen, he drove out the lambs, and he overthrew the money changers' tables, meaning the money separate, uh, spilled out onto the floor. But the doves, he didn't open them, open up the cages and let them fly away because then they would have gone, who knows where, they would have flown away and somebody would have lost property. That would have been sinful. He simply overthrew the tables. He simply corrected the situation and told everybody to get out of there. Well, where's an ox going to go? A few feet and stop. Where's a sheep going to go? You know anything about sheep? They don't run away. Or rarely do they run away unless they think that they've got something better on the other side of the hill. They usually walk a few steps and stop. So everybody here gets back what they've got. The money changer's money is on the ta- or is on the floor. They grab the money up and they get out of the, the temple. That's the whole point. He's cleansing the temple. Now, what does this show us about Judaism? What does it show us about the Jews? Well, in chapter 1, we looked at in verse uh, 11 and verse 26, the Jews didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't even know who the forerunner of Jesus was. They came to John the Baptist saying, who are you and who gave you this authority? So they didn't know him. So you've got a blind priesthood. The second thing we see at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, we see an empty religion. Now, everything up to this point has been kind of a negative, here's their problem. Here's the positive evil in their midst. They profaned the temple. Can you see it? And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Verse 17. When did they remember that? After Jesus was raised from the dead. They didn't know what was going on at the time. They're all looking around saying, wow, we've never seen this side of him. Even though they've been with him for years up to this point. This is at the end of his ministry. John puts it at the first to show the relationship to Jesus and the Jews. But this happens at the end of his ministry. Verse 18. Now we're going to get to it. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Remember what they asked in chapter 1 and verse 26 of John the Baptist? Who are you to be baptizing like this? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, then who are you to baptize like this? Who gave you this authority? Jesus has just cleaned out the money changers. Now, folks, the reason that they're in the temple is because the priests are getting the cut. And so now the Jews, the priests come and they say, what sign will you give unto us that show us that you have this authority? No question Jesus can do it. Jesus just did it. Now, it's interesting to me that he was invited to the wedding at Cana. He kind of brought himself into the temple. 
And the Jews say, what sign are you going to give us? What can you do to show that you have the authority to do this stuff? I'm just to guess. I'm guessing they waited till they put down the whip before they asked him. Not that they would have been in any danger, because if Jesus had struck had struck the priest, then that would have been a sin too. So they asked him. They said, "What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things?" And Jesus answering said unto them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up." What's the sign Jesus uses? What is it that Jesus uses as his authority to cleanse the temple? His crucifixion and his resurrection. Everything about Jesus is focused on his hour. Everything John's going to tell us is Jesus' focus on the hour that he was sent for. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Folks, do you understand what that's saying? It's saying that they spent all this time with Jesus, hearing Jesus tell these things. Now, this happened at the end of his ministry, so it wasn't a long period of time. But remember, after Jesus was uh, transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared and his raiment started shining. He began to clearly tell them. Luke says he began to clearly teach and explain that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, he'll be killed and raised again on the third day. Where are, they, where are these guys on the third day? They're hiding away somewhere because they don't believe it. Jesus appears in their midst, and the first thing it says is he upbraids them for their hardness of heart because they didn't believe what he told them. Now, I, I'm not getting down on them because I'm not sure where you and I would have been in that situation either. That would have been kind of different. Different, different and difficult to believe, don't you think? But now after it happens, they look back and here's the work of the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, one of the things the Holy Ghost will do is bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto thee. After they're baptized in the Spirit of God, after they're born again and filled with the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Spirit begins to show them all the things and remind them of all the things Jesus said. And they, they go, oh, wow, that's what he meant. If only we had known it then. It's the sign of his resurrection that is the reason that he purifies the temple. Now, folks, think about this. Where is the presence of God at the time Jesus goes to the temple? It's not in Herod's temple. God had moved out when the second temple was destroyed. The presence of God, the glory of God was never in Herod's temple. That's why when Jesus was approached by the disciples and they said, oh, isn't this beautiful? Jesus thumbs his nose at it and says, there's not one stone going to be left on another. There's nothing about this place. This is just a building. There's no presence of God. And as a result, the priests who have the opportunity to look back at the history of when the glory of God filled the temple, instead now they filled it with merchandising. They filled it with the love of money. And they want to know, who gave you authority to do away with our income or this means of income? Jesus talks about his own temple. He talks about his own body. He talks about the resurrection. Verse 23. Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. John doesn't tell us what those miracles were. But a few days later, 
at this same feast, at this same Passover. A few days later, Jesus is doing miracles. John doesn't tell us how he did them. He doesn't say that we, that's when we learned about the name of Jesus. Doesn't tell us anything because the focus is on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And it said many believed on him. When they saw the miracles which he did. Verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. You know what this means? This means that Jesus knew that the people that wanted him to be with them wanted him for selfish reasons. Now it says they believed. But they still wanted to use him for their own purposes. The same thing, the same attitude that caused the temple to be filled with money changers and, and sellers of animals and things like that. That caused the temple to be profaned. The same thing was in the heart of the people that said, oh, we believe in Jesus. That's why it's going to be very significant when Jesus talks to those later on in chapter 8 that believed on him, he tells them the difference between believers and disciples. These were believers, and that's great, but they never became disciples. So Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew they only wanted him for a reason. He knew that the Pharisees, the priests, the, the Levites, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and all these guys, the first thing they tried to do is they tried to bring Jesus into their fold. Oh, wow, those are great miracles. Listen, we've got a special place for you. Why? Because they wanted to use him for their own purposes. Folks, there's a lot of people in the body of Christ that are trying to use Jesus and Christianity for their own purposes. Yeah, he's fire insurance. And everybody needs fire insurance. But not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is really committed to Jesus for the right reasons. You need to realize that in church. I've had people that over the years uh, come and say, Pastor Mike, I got involved with somebody in the church and they swindled me out of some money. Why didn't you warn us of that? Well, folks, let me warn you of that. There are people in the church that are here for the wrong reasons. There are some people that come to church just for the sake of merchandising you. Paul tells us that. Just because somebody says, praise the Lord and lifts their hands when we worship God, that doesn't mean their heart's given out to the Lord. That's why I can't stand people to put fish stuff on their business cards. If you're honest, we'll know. You don't have to show us a fish. Now, if you've got a fish on your business card, don't take it off there. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to say. But some people have a fish on their business card or whatever it is, and then they live like they don't, they don't even know who Jesus is. Jesus wouldn't commit himself because he knew all men. Notice John tells us about his relationship with the Jews and immediately says that Jesus wouldn't commit himself to the Jews because he was here for everybody. Thank God he's here for everybody. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. For those of you that were worried that we wouldn't get through the book of John before the millennium, we should be able to carry us a, a chapter a week from this point forward. So it'll only take us, what, 19 more weeks. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Father, we thank you so much. That Jesus is the Son of God. That He came to the earth to show us who You are. To show us Your goodness. To show us Your mercy. He came to accomplish Your will, Your plan, and Your purpose. Thank You, Father, that that 
plan has been accomplished. It has been finished. Jesus has finished the work. Therefore, we are righteous in your sight. We need not shrink back from anything, even when we stumble over our own flesh and fall into sin. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we're filled with the Holy Ghost. We have the power of the Holy Ghost resident within us. We are led by the Spirit of God. Thank you that you get involved in all the details of our lives by the Spirit of God that dwells within us. We thank you, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you that the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. And therefore, all of our needs are met and you see us through. Not just help us get by, Father, but you show us your plan for prospering us. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is our Passover sacrificed for us. Help us, show us how that we can partake of everything that he did so that we can be the people that he died for us to be. In Jesus' precious name, if you agree with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.